Now, uh, um, it's going to be a bit tricky because of the lines, but uh, one of my favorite TV shows is Lost. I don't know if anyone else has seen this. It's a Lost, so I'm very addicted to Lost. Basically, the premise is it's uh, about a plane that's crashed on the mysterious Pacific Island, and uh, it's all about the different survivors and their hugely diverse parts, and each program, certainly in the first two series, each episode revolves around one of the characters and flashbacks of their parts before they got on this uh, momentous flight. And uh, one of them is a man called Saeed, who it transpires was a member of the Iraqi Revolutionary Guard and actually uh, was rather an arty piece of work. Well, years after he left the Iraqi army and uh, got out of Iraq, uh, but before the flight, he ended up in Paris. Uh, where he gets kidnapped by a couple who accuse him of torturing the, the wife. And basically, I'm going to show you the scene, and keep your ears peeled, it's quite hard to hear the dialogue to begin with, and it's going to be very hard to see, but you'll get the impact. Um, because basically, the woman who has accused him of torturing him, uh, now confronts him in the room where he's being held. After my husband pushed her out to Paris, I was afraid to ever meet our family. I would stare out the window into the alley and I would see this cat looking for scraps. One day, ten children came to the alley and cracked in a box. I watched them light firecrackers and drop me in the box. I could hear him howl from the three stories above. So finally, I had a reason to leave my life. I rescued this cat and I brought him home. He sits with me when I leave. Sleeps with me. But every once in a while, he will bite me or scratch me. does this because sometimes he forgets that he is sick. So I forgive him when he bites me because I know what it is like to never be sick. And that is because he Acknowledging what you did to me. That it was you who questioned me. That tortured me. And that you remember me. Your face has wanted me ever since I got there.
During a, a British conference on comparative religion some years back, uh, experts from around the world debated on what, if any, belief was unique to Christianity. And they began eliminating all kinds of possibilities. Incarnation, well, other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Obviously not quite the same exactly, but, you know, verging on it. Uh, other religions had sort of resurrection. They had accounts of the return from death, so that wasn't particularly unique uh, as a claim. And the debate was going on and on and round and round in circles until C.S. Lewis walked into the room. And uh, he said, what's the rumpus about? And he heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution to world religions. And uh, Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seemed to go right against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, and so on and so forth, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. And that's a tough lesson to learn. It's a tough... Is that right? It's a tough lesson for members of all souls to learn. Uh, there's some more uh, booklets. If maybe Steve, could you take some booklets to the back? It's a tough lesson to learn for those uh, of us in all souls. We go to all souls hang in place. <laughs> Don't you know? That's, of course, where John Stott ministered for many years, don't you know? <laughs> such a legacy, such a ministry, and it continues to this day, you know. Marvellous church, marvellous church. <laughs> such good teaching, you know. Uh, such a good place for our children. So international, isn't marvellous? There are so many different people together. We've, we've got 65 nationalities in our church, don't you know? <laughs> Our congregation, you know, it's massive. Uh, you know, we have our summer week away, we, we get 240 people at our summer week away. <laughs> we must be doing something, right? God must be pretty, pretty just with us. All the souls lacking such heritage. And we forget that God's love for us is unconditional. We didn't earn it. We could never earn it, even if we tried. And that is a tough lesson for the proud, like us. Because, you see, accepting the gospel of grace demands an admission that we are unlovely. That we're no better off than those we regard as unlovely. And it's a bitter pill to swallow. But if we are Christ's, if we belong to the Christ. It is a pill we have no option but to swallow. All the more so if we are all souls partners, which I hope we all are, and there are partnership packs on the desk. <laughs> and it was a bitter pill to Nicodemus. But you know, the wonderful thing about him, he was a Pharisee who was not too proud. 
the Pharisees get a pretty bad rap in the, in the New Testament, don't they? But here was a Pharisee who was actually quite good at for once. So let's think about his story and, and uh, what happened with him. The first thing is, I, I want to say that he was a leader who was on to something. He was not just a Pharisee, he was a senior Pharisee. So chapter 3, verse 1, he was on the Jewish ruling council. He was a bigwig. This gave him immense political as well as religious power, albeit a power restricted by Roman occupiers, but it was power nonetheless. And as John slips in in verse 2, in passing, he came to Jesus at night. Now, even if uh, John is sometimes spirally repetitive, every word in John counts, and, and, and basically this little sentence, little phrase is significant. Uh, some people go to town imagining all kinds of dark and cowardly uh, motives for Nicodemus. I don't think we should go that far. It could only be, it could be perfectly innocent. I mean, both Jesus and Nicodemus were busy men. Perhaps night time was the only time he could get off to come and see him. Who knows? Perhaps it was the only time he could be sure of tracking Jesus down and finding him to talk to him. Who knows? Furthermore, it was a pretty courageous thing to come to Jesus in the first place, whether you do it in day or night. But I think what is significant is the symbolism of what's going on. And John is really into symbolism. He was coming out of the night into the presence of Jesus. And that meant he was coming out of darkness of the world into the light of God. Now if you think I'm being fanciful, just look on to verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. But here was a man who did not love darkness instead of light. He came when it was night, but he came to the light. And of course that rings bells with the prologue again. You remember the prologue? Chapter 1, verse 9, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. We saw that on day one. Now, it's interesting. Why did Nicodemus come in the first place? Well, look closely what he says in verse 2. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. And we already saw, we saw this yesterday. At the end of chapter 2, Jesus performed many other signs. So it wasn't just the wine uh, miracle in chapter 2. Uh, verse 23, many other signs, but John hasn't recorded them. But Nicodemus presumably knows about them. So that's why he says we know you, that there's something special about you. So he knows the signs are pointing somewhere. He's not quite sure what the signs point to. All right, do you remember our spiral? Signs pointing to the fact that the Christ is Jesus. That you might believe in him and have life. Well, we're early days. We're early stage in John's Gospel. We've had some signs. And Nicodemus has an interest sort of provoked. He's come along. He wants to find out a bit more about, you know, we know you're from God, but we're not quite sure what that means yet. So he comes out of the night into the presence of the light. He's seen that God was at work. And the wonderful thing is, when we look later on in the gospel, we find that he has clearly been affected. So by chapter 7, we see he's been incredibly brave. Chapter 7, verse 50, don't bother looking at it, I'll just read it. Chapter 7, verse 15, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, John lays it on thick there, asks, does our Lord condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? So there he is, in his position of political authority, in the council, he's standing up for Jesus. He's battling with his fellow Jewish leaders to defend Jesus. That took real guts. And then on to chapter 19, even more courageous, because it's not just his peers that he's going to have to worry about now, it's also the fact that the Romans will start taking an interest. Chapter 19, verse 39, Joseph and Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Remember him? Nicodemus bought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Something has changed this man. His life has been turned right round, so that he is sticking his head right above the parapet. He is identifying himself with an executed criminal. For someone in high political office, that is a dangerous thing to do. 
So what's happened in this conversation? Well, back to chapter 3. He's a leader who was onto something, but he was also a teacher who should have known better. Well, Jesus is not particularly diplomatic at all, in fact. He gets straight to the point with no niceties. You know, Nicodemus has all been very polite and, and lovely and, and friendly, and he comes along and says, you know, we know that you're from God, it's marvellous, we'd like to find out a bit more. Verse, uh, uh, where is it, verse 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Hello? <clears throat> uh, and in case Nicodemus missed the point, it's repeated three more times. Verse 5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and of the Spirit. Verse 7, you should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. And then verse 8, the wind hollows wherever it pleases, you cannot, you hear it sound, you cannot tell where it goes, or where it comes from, where it goes, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You're getting the idea, Nicodemus, four times. You've got to be born again. Now, problem. That is a phrase that for many of us conjures up all kinds of negative connotations. So in America, it's pretty much a demographic category in politics. The born again. And they're going to vote like this. If I'm not one of those born agains. And just the other day, I was talking to a Turkish friend who's a Muslim. I've been having extraordinary conversations with Turkish friends. I don't know whether it's partly because I'm visiting there or not, but... Anyway, the Lord is bringing them across my path, and we're just having coffee. And he asked me, are you one of those born-agains? And I had to be very careful. I had to say, well, what do you mean by that? I don't think I'm what you think I am. I'm pretty sure I'm not what you think I am. But I am born again. Because Jesus said that everybody, everybody who follows him has to be born again. He said it there in black and white in John chapter 3, four times. Don't miss the point. You have to be born again. But of course, while being nothing but um, uh, provocative, it's also something that's already been flagged up in the prologue again. We saw that on day one as well. Chapter 1, verse 12. To all who believe, he gave the right to become children of God, to be born of God. So it's not new, this. John's already flagged it up in chapter 1. Being born again is part of the deal, and it's all about the heart. Now, I think it was as hard then as it is now to understand what on earth Jesus is on earth. Of course, it was accepted uh, by Jewish leaders that Gentile converts uh, to, Ju uh, to Judaism in Jesus' day uh, would have had to start a new life. And they, some of them would even take on a new name. They would have been given the name Bar Abram, Bar Abraham, son of Abraham. So they're adopted in, if they were a, a, a Gentile convert into Judaism, they would become Bar Abraham, son of Abraham. A new life. People used to talk about it in those sort of terms. But, but somebody who's already a Jew, somebody not only is a Jew, but actually a senior, learned, respected, authoritative Jew. And at first he takes it literally, and then verse, uh, in verse 4 and then verse 9 he says, how can this be? You see, it's not just that he doesn't understand the biology of it. It's that he doesn't understand the theology of it. How can this be? But he gets little elbow room from Jesus, does he? Look at verse 10. You are Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things. You really ought to know better, you know. Why should Jesus have known? Why did Nicodemus should have known better? Well, I think there are three reasons I've got for this. One is that God has already revealed what's needed. And at various points in the Bible, and I've given you some phrases, some verses uh, that uh, are, are relevant here. But uh, Ezekiel 36 is very important, I think, here. Uh, you can't find it. I'll read it. It's up on the screen. I'll read it out. This is what God tells uh, Ezekiel uh, to tell the people about what will happen after the exile. Okay, after they come out of exile, this is what's going to happen. Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and, pay, and be careful to keep my laws. It's an astonishing promise, isn't it? 
is similar to Jeremiah 31 as well, where God promises a new heart. That the, that the law won't be external, it will be internal. In other words, the problem with the old covenant was not the covenant itself, but us and our inability to live it. And Ezekiel promises a new heart. And there are various examples of interesting water imagery in the Old Testament. You can look them up for yourselves, but it's interesting, isn't it? Noah is saved through the flood in Genesis 6-9. Uh, the redeemed are rescued through the sea in Exodus. And uh, 2 Kings 5 is interesting. Remember the story of Naaman? And he sort of sort of gets baptized, but also sort of cleansed. A Gentile um, soldier gets cleansed in the river in this remarkable story. All different images of... God's saving power through water. But the most important, I think, is Ezekiel. You should not be surprised, Nicodemus, when I say you must be born again. You should not be surprised. You're Israel's teacher. You should know better. You've got the scriptures. It's interesting, though, in verse 7, when Jesus says you should not be surprised, he says, when you, plural, He's not just talking to Nicodemus. He says, you should not be surprised when you, plural, in fact, you Jewish people, as well as you Gentile people, all of you need to be born again, he says. Another reason why it's not surprising is to realise what's necessary for anybody to believe in the first place. Because actually, trusting in God when you're a sinner is totally counterintuitive, isn't it? Because what is the nature of sin? It is... Trusting myself, not God. That is the very nature of it. It's me, me, me. It's self-centered. It's sin. You know the old Sunday school thing, sin has I in the middle. Why on earth would someone who has I in the middle suddenly want to change that and say put God in the middle? It is totally counterintuitive. Why Why would anyone want to do that? It doesn't make any sense at all. I'm quite happy with I in the middle. Well, God has sent people to bear witness to this fact. Uh, in John's Gospel, it's a message that's constantly uh, proclaimed. It lies at the, the heart of why the Christ must come into his world to save sinners who wouldn't naturally think they need saving. And the message or the testimony is both therefore about the need for salvation and the bringer of salvation. So part of the witness is to, to help people understand why they need a saviour. And on the sheet, there are a number of fascinating examples. I've, I've just listed them. We won't go through them. But if you've got a moment, just go through those verses in John's Gospel where witnessing is going on. And it's fascinating. There are two groups. There's, a, there's the group of what Jesus witnesses about himself. And then John talks and records various other things that, and people that um, witness to Jesus. And when you look through them, they have a consistent focus. All of the witnessing is about the Christ. So you see, it's not just the signs that point to the Christ, it's the message of all those who have a message in John, pointing to the Christ. And they're all telling us that the Christ is Jesus. And of course, <laughs> that's what John himself is doing when he writes. Remember the prologue again. We have seen his glory. He's just testifying. He's just saying how it is. He's saying what we've seen. And then John the Baptist in the prologue, we saw that as well. What is he doing? He's testifying about the word. He's like, it's not me. Don't look at me. Look at him. And then as John, John chapter 1 goes on, he says, behold, look. Look over there. There he is. It's the blessing of God. But uh, when he's talking to Nicodemus, the whole idea of witnessing is important. So verses 11 and 12, he's saying, look, I, I, I'm giving testimony about what I know. I, I'm telling you about what I've seen. I've been there, I've done that. I'm telling you about what I've seen. All right? That's why he has authority. And so he says in verse 11, look, you know, I'm just telling you how it is. But look, if you don't understand earthly things, how on earth are you going to understand heavenly things? Isn't it interesting that being born again is an earthly thing here? So if you find the whole idea of being born again to understand, you know, heaven help you, you try to understand heavenly things. So let's start with the earthly things. Let's start with trying to get born again clear. But what 
does this got to do with being born again? Well, it's not immediately clear. The Baptist has said that he spotted Jesus coming, said, behold the Lamb. That is his testimony. It's consistent with Jesus' own testimony. Well, why do we need a Lamb? Because we can't save ourselves. Because we'll instinctively want to reject every witness God sends. We'll think, I don't need him. I don't need that. Actually, something else has to happen. God has to intervene for somebody to come to faith at all. Now, this is quite shocking. See, a radical change is needed. Again, as implied in the prologue. If you prefer darkness, if darkness is your natural habitat, why on earth would you want to come into the light? Why don't you see bats flying around during the day? Because they like the dark. You will never want to go from one to the other by yourself. Why would you want to? The light is a threat. And it's a consistent theme through the gospel. So in chapter 6, verse 44, uh, Jesus says that the Father must draw people to him. In chapter 9, we'll look at this tomorrow. Uh, Jesus came to help the blind see. Again, it's not just a a healing miracle. It's a symbol of what Jesus is doing. Helping the blind to see. And chapter 9 makes that clear. And then the Holy Spirit is needed to work in someone before they can come to faith. Just turn on to chapter 16 briefly, would you? Very famous passage. So Father, Son, and Spirit, all three members, all three persons of the Trinity, at work in drawing people to faith. The chapter 16 is very interesting, verse 8. And he's talking about the paraclete, the parakletos, the one who is called to be alongside the counselor, the comforter, it's a very difficult word to translate. But he says, look, it's good news that I'm going away, verse 6, verse 7. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And folks, that's really good. Why? Well, when he comes, verse 8, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can no longer see me. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. It may seem a bit of a sort of odd... A collection of things, they may seem a bit like some non sequiturs in a way, but, but actually it's very significant. Why does the Spirit need to convince someone of the reality of sin? Well, we've made that clear, haven't we? Why would anyone want to come out of the darkness into the light? It's very hard, it's very hard to acknowledge that you have lived in God's world without trusting Him. And to acknowledge that He's the most important person in the cosmos, even though you can't see or touch Him. It's very hard to acknowledge that I'm living in God's world on my terms. In a sense, that's what sin is, isn't it? Living in God's world on my terms. It's a hard thing to admit. Very interesting in that clip we saw at the beginning. Saeed, uh, there'd be one or two rather more brutal scenes before that where he's been beaten up and he was to say, I don't know who you are. I don't know who that woman is. I've never seen you before. He goes on and on, insisting he has nothing to do with that torture. It's a very hard thing to admit. We need the Spirit to open eyes to the reality of sin. We need the Spirit to open eyes to the reality of righteousness. Because where do we see righteousness truly? Well, in God, in Christ, God's righteousness is revealed. We sing about that, don't we? And if Jesus goes away, how on earth are we going to have a benchmark of righteousness to see, in a way? So the Spirit will come to convict us of righteousness, so we know what righteousness is. And of judgment? Well, let's think about it. How often do you think, Jesus coming back? What a joke. I don't know whether you read any of the Douglas Adams um, uh, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books, but uh, on one of the planets, 
there's a whole sort of chapter about a group of people who believe in some prophet Zarkon who's going to come back, and they believe he's going to come back, but of course everybody else knows they never will, but they won't tell them just to keep them hoping. And it's a clear sort of dig at Christians who believe this absurd thing that Jesus is coming back. I mean, how ridiculous. It's a beautiful day, everything's so calm and relaxed, and, and you know, here we are, life goes on, you know, the train time will seem to work, and and, you know, volcanoes don't interrupt too many planes, and this life carries on. The idea that something that's going to stop, and Jesus is going to come back and call the whole world to account, you've got to be joking. That's nuts! You're only going to believe that if the Spirit convinces you of it. Because otherwise you're going to believe that if there is any power at work in the world, it's the enemy. He's the one who's in control. How else could things like Pakistan flooding happen? Or was it 20 million people affected by that river flood? You can't believe it. So all of this shows why trusting in God is completely stacked against us. If Nicodemus understood the deep reality of his own sinfulness, well, he would have known that God must be involved to bring people to faith. He would have known that being born again is the only option. Because you can't turn over a new leaf to sort this out, you need to be given a new life. And you must be born again. A radical departure of the old way to start a new way. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, the old has gone, the new has come, we are a new creation. Precisely what God does. It's a gift. Because if it was anything less than a gift, we'd be stuck. I came across this remarkable quote from Mark Twain, of all people, I was very surprised to see Mark Twain say this, but he sums it up rather nicely, believe it or not. Mark Twain said this, Heaven goes by favour, or grace. If it went by merit, you would stay out, and your dog would go in. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why Jesus suddenly changed the subject back in John 3 to a very strange... This actually is a rescue that God had always planned. Again, this is why Israel's teacher really should have known. There's a chap with a snake and a bronze snake. You can't quite see it, but it's rather painful. I'm very pleased to find him there. Um, I'm not grumbling about the weather. Now, Numbers, the book of Numbers, is one of the most depressing books in the Bible. It's a very sad book, isn't it? We find out what saved people are really like, even after they've been saved. We find out what saved people are really like when left to their own devices. The Israelites get angry with God, they complain that he brought them out to the desert to die. What sort of cruel God would do that? Bring a whole nation out into the desert to just leave them to die. One of the most despicable, disgusting God ever. Which, of course, is the complete reverse of the truth, isn't it? He brought them out to live. That is calling black, white, and white, black, and that is the classic thing that sin does. So God judged by sending snakes. We heard uh, the story from Numbers earlier. The only rescue is for people, you see, who look at a bronze snake that Moses sets up on a pole. As Numbers said in 2, 21 verse 9, don't look it up. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it on a pole, and then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at it, uh, he lived. It's a very odd story. Why do this? I mean, this is not standard medical procedure. I would be rather shocked if my GP recommended this uh, when I go with a snake bite. No, you do this because God told you to. No other reason. There's no other reason that you ever do this. You do it because God tells you to. This is obedient faith. This is faith that obeys. If God says do this, you trust him by doing it. In the case of God, and this is the interesting thing, God saving people from himself. He was the one who sent the snakes in judgment. But he's also the one who wants to save people because of his grace. So he saves them from himself. 
But of course, the most famous summary of what the Christ, the Son of Man, Jesus of Nazareth, does uh, comes next in chapter 3, verse 16. We sang it earlier, didn't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That sums up the whole of John's Gospel. In fact, you've got most of the ingredients of our spiral again. There it is. The signs pointing to the fact that the Christ is Jesus, so that you believe in him and thereby have life. But this sums it up also in terms of God's motivation. It is his love. He doesn't want people to perish. He is saving people from himself. And it's amazing, you see, it's not just sort of the world. You don't, don't think of the world as a sort of beautiful blue planet here. You know, the sort of David Attenborough thing that's impressive and awesome and awe-inspiring and everything else. Think of a world that is rebellious and hates God. That's the world he loves. <clears throat> Our familiarity means that we miss the most staggering thing. The sort of world that God loved was a world that hated him and preferred darkness to light. In short, it's a world that hates God. Look at verse 19. This is a verdict that has come to the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Well, of course not. And yet that's the world that God loves. Now, I want to do a bit of an experiment here. I'm going to play you a song. It's not you two. Sadly. One day. Um, it's by a Canadian singer, Alanis Morissette. And uh, it's a, a remarkable song about unconditional love in uh, a marriage relationship. It's, uh, I think it's written about her husband. Uh, it doesn't perfectly reflect what I'm talking about, and there are some things that don't quite fit, but it does give a sense of what unconditional love is like. Uh, please forgive, there's a bit of a rude word in the first line, but I think you can handle it. Um, if you can't, just block your ears about five words in. <laughs> and I want you to just listen to this and just be thinking how much more amazing is God's love for us. See 
love has no one than this. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I'll rush through the last few things so we can get to our group, but it's all in the light of that. Greater love has no one than this. Greater glory has no one than this. Jesus in chapter 12, don't look it up, says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. seeds. It's an astonishing thing. Back in the prologue, John said, We have seen his glory. You would never have guessed that what ultimately he meant by that was the cross. The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. The cross. To give himself an absolute and total self-sacrificial love. That is true love. Oh, to be loved like that. What words can describe it? Greater life has no one than this. Well, again, it's John's spiral, isn't it? That's the point. That's why he wrote that we might have life. And oh, what life. And that's the great attraction of the gospel, isn't it? That we might have life. Now, something we must clear up, you see, in John's gospel, the opposite of eternal life is not this life. It's a logical thing you might think, isn't it? That eternal life is uh, contrasted with this temporal life. No, that's not what John means by eternal life. Basically, we can have this life and then we have eternal life, even at the same time. Because, you see, the opposite of eternal life is not this life but God's condemnation. That's the opposite. <laughs> and you can have eternal life starting now in John's Gospel. Eternal life begins here and now. If it's not begun yet with you, 
Do something about it. Pray that it might begin. Because what it is, ultimately, is being in the presence of your Christ forever. It's not about clouds. It's not about rainbow-strapped guitars and sandals and wispy boringness. It's about being in the presence of the Christ forever, which is the light, the life, the bread of life, the truth, the resurrection, the good shepherd. What's not like to like? And John gets this across in all kinds of ways. You know, I'll give you some verses there to look up. Uh, John chapter 1, he takes up the theme of the ladder to heaven that's provided. Or chapter 6, the bread and water that satisfies sustenance. Chapter 11, the life that overcomes grief and death. Chapter 14, a home. One of my favourite verses. I, the Father and I will come and make our homes in you. Chapter 13, we have a servant who washes us and loves us. We'll think about that in a couple of days. And this decision has no middle ground. To refuse is to stay condemned. To believe is to have eternal life. John is full of contrasts. He doesn't have any fences at all. You can look through all the way through. You can spot them. The contrast between good and evil, love and hatred, life and death, saved and condemned, light and dark, truth and falsehood. Nicodemus came out of the shadows into the presence of Jesus. He's the light of the world. He took that step and found that he saw God's word standing right there in front of him. And he believed in him. And he had eternal life. And it began there. And I pray that if you've never done it, you would too. And if you have, don't forget it. Don't forget it. Do everything you can to remind yourself. Uh, Jago Wynn, in his book, uh, Working Without Wilson, has got a nice little illustration of a friend of his called Andy Stewart, who uh, uh, held to this, uh, found and discovered this Jewish tradition of carrying a small piece of card in your pocket, which has words written on both sides. On one side, it says, You're a sinner. On the other side, it says, you're precious to God. When you're feeling smug, look at the first side. When you're feeling low, look at the other side. It's simple and very effective. That's great. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. For his remarkable sacrificial love for each one of us. Father, you know us. You know our hearts. You know our thoughts and our wishes and our desires and our hang-ups. Our rubbish. And you're still here. You still want to know us. You still want us to be with you. You want us to be with you forever. And we praise you for that. And long that we might never forget it. Thank you.